Hey everybody, today we're talking with Dan Lesser, President and CEO of LWHA. Dan is a consultant, appraiser, receiver, wearer of many hats. We're gonna find out how properties are appraising today in this COVID environment, and how busy he is as a receiver, and what advice you might have to borrowers. Thanks for joining. Hey Dan, thanks for being here today. Uh, another fun edition of Teak Talks, happy Friday. You looking good, where are you, I gotta ask. Uh, I'm actually in Great Neck, New York right now, which is my primary residence. So you're at home. Are you going into the city at all? Uh, no, I have not been in Manhattan since the end of January. Um, I have a place up on Martha's Vineyard, so I've sort of spent time up there and here in, uh, in Great Neck. So am I staring at your office for the foreseeable future? Well, the, our office is open and some of our folks are going in. Um, but we have a whole, you know, a whole cadre of folks that are around the country that work remotely anyway. So yeah, yeah, yeah. We've, we've always been set up to work remotely. Yeah, it's not a big impact for you guys. That's no. good. How's no. the family? How's the wife and the daughters? Thank God. Thank God. Everybody's good. My wife, my, my two grown boys. Uh, how about yours? Uh, doing well. Thank you for asking. Good. School started back. Here, here. My kids are out of school. I don't have to worry about that. I know. Hopefully they're out of the house, too. They are. Yeah. All right. Good. 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 So, uh, so I, I know, but for the viewers, they may not, may not know. Remind me, how'd you get into this crazy business, uh, and how'd you start LWHA? Wow, that's a good question. So, how did I get into this uh, crazy business? Um, when I was in uh, much younger years, uh, and in particularly high school, I was not very uh, academically uh, uh, oriented, if you will. Uh, but I always d demonstrated an entrepreneurial spirit and uh, at a very young age, you know, was hustling to, to make money. And uh, I recall vividly uh, when I was about 13 years old, I was um, raking leaves and blowing snow for, for neighbors. It was backbreaking work. And, uh, you know, I had friends that were hanging out on the street, shooting hoops. And, and then one day I had this thought, like, you know, you guys are being degenerates, you should come do some work and make a couple of a couple of bucks. So at 13, I actually assembled two small crews and I had these guys going around, you know, doing the work and I wasn't doing the work anymore. I was collecting the money, paying them and keeping the difference. And then fast forward to my first finance class when I learned about uh, leverage, I was like, I know what that is. So um, back in those days, I, uh, again, I, I had demonstrated a, a fair amount of entrepreneurship um, and um, my parents had, uh, who, who originally were from uh, Europe, my father from uh, Berlin and my mother from Vienna, uh, they'd come across a book uh, called the Va uh, Your Career in Hotels and Motels. Herbert Witzke was the, was the author. And they, they, they told me about this book and uh, I said, okay, it sounds interesting, you know, get it for me, I'll read it. And they were like, no, no, if you're interested, you go get it with your own money and read it. I was like, okay, sure. Six months later, I found myself in front of a, actually a Doubleday bookstore, which I don't know if you remember Doubleday. Um, and I was waiting for a couple of friends of mine and I had about 15, 20 minutes. I was like, you know what? I'm gonna go into the bookstore and check this book out. And I did. And um, th this is back in you know early seventies. So the world was much bigger then, right? We didn't have technology, we didn't have Zoom. And um, I remember vividly looking in, in the middle of this book, there were about 10 pages of black and white photographs of hotels all around the world. And I just, I, I thought that was like just fascinating and really cool. And, 
I immediately resonated with it. And, um, and then I ended up uh, uh, checking out a hotel school in Lausanne, Switzerland called the Ecole Atelier. And uh, when I was in 10th grade, I applied to go there at the time as an American citizen uh, to equal a Swiss high school education, you needed high school in the United States plus two years of university in America to equal a high school education over there. It just so happened that at the time there was a four-year waiting list for foreigners if you got accepted before you could actually get in. So it worked out perfectly. I had two years of high school left. I went to uh, uh, City University of New York after I graduated high school, um, Baruch College to be specific. It's also known as UCLA, University on the corner of Lexington Avenue. Um, after I uh, um, finished two years there and I was you know, getting ready to go to Switzerland, Lausanne, I, uh, I got cold feet and I applied to Cornell University's hotel school. And they sort of laughed at me. Um, GPA was not all that good. Remember that whole academic thing? Anyway, I ended up going to Lausanne. It was the best thing that ever happened that Cornell turned me down uh, the first time. Um, I did what was called the Cours de Cuisine, which was learning how to cook. And uh, Teague, I can assure you that I make better fried eggs than anybody you've ever met, uh, <laughs> which I learned yeah. from that program. Yeah, what's the quarantine uh, uh, meal that you're fixing for the family? The quarantine meal? Yes. I just told you, fried eggs. Fried eggs. Right. Nobody makes them better than me. Best fried eggs. Anyway, I spent a year in Switzerland. Uh, it was an amazing experience. Uh, I re Seriously, I learned how to cook. I met some great people. Um, you know, I, I, I learned uh, foreign language. It was just, an, I skied. I skied a tremendous amount. It was awesome. Um, and then I uh, reapplied to Cornell and uh, miraculously got in. And that's where I ultimately uh, graduated uh, uh, hotel school from. And then I worked for Hilton for a couple of years in operations uh, at the New York Hilton Hotel, 2,000 room property at, on 6th Avenue and between 53rd and 54th Street. Fantastic learning laboratory if you want to learn how hotels work. I went through every sub-department within the, uh, the front office and then every sub-department within food and beverage. So I went through two separate training programs. And then ultimately, I was kicked up to the catering sales office. And um, then one day, I sort of realized that uh, I love the hotel business, but I didn't want to spend my life working in hotels. And uh, I had an idea about, you know, trying to figure out how to get into real estate, uh, but not walking away from my hotel background. And Steve Rushmore at the time, this is 1981, uh, had, uh, had founded uh, HVS, which back then was Hospitality Evaluation Services. One thing led to another, timing is everything in life. Um, I, I met him and uh, he happened to need a, a warm body the day that I met him and I was in the right place at the right time. And uh, Steve took me on and I spent 13 years, uh, 13 years with him at, uh, at HVS and then 11 years at Cushman Wakefield, five years at C.B. Richard Ellis. Uh, that's where I met my partner, Evan Weiss, at CBRE. And uh, almost 10 years ago now, we founded LW Hospitality Advisors. I'm the L, he's the W. Uh, we spent a lot of money to come up with that moniker, LW Hospitality Advisors. <laughs> uh, so that's my story. That, that's how I got to where I am today. I love it. So tell me you were the first employee for HBS. I was. I was. All right. So we've been LWH 10 years now, right? That's January 5th will be our 10-year anniversary. It's that amazing. Time flies. I still feel like I'm 19. Yeah. 
to, you, you look at. Uh, I, I dye my hair for, uh, you know, for credibility purposes. It's really not great. Perfect. Yeah, mine too. Um, <laughs> you dye uh, your hair, right? <laughs> all right, so, uh, so let's, let's give the basics. So uh, consulting, appraisals, um, uh, asset management work, uh, heck, now, uh, 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 what's the word I'm looking for? Receivership uh, work. Receivership. That's the word I was looking for. Yep. So, uh, one, tell me, what are you guys working on today versus has the world changed from what you were working on pre-COVID to today? Uh, in terms of pre-COVID, we were extremely busy on all fronts. Uh, when figure March 15th came around, we had a handful of assignments that, that uh, were terminated. Uh, we have a staff of about 35 situated all around the country, and uh, we stayed pretty busy finishing up work that we had to do uh, through the end of uh, April. And then in May, uh, at the low point, figure May, first part of June, uh, we ended up with about half our staff with not a whole lot to do, but we didn't lay anybody off. Uh, and then at the end of June, beginning of July, it just really amped up again. And today I'm very happy to say, and uh, I'm very fortunate and feel very blessed that we are extremely busy. And we're extremely busy on a whole slew of fronts. Um, appraisal is obviously a core competency valuation. And if you think about it, um, every hotel in America at this point needs to get reappraised, right? Because almost every hotel in America is challenged. Right. And, and to figure out what to do next, if anything, the fundamental question that always is, well, what's the value? Right. So we are extremely busy on the on the valuation front, uh, one offs, portfolios, all of the above. Um, believe it or not, uh, um, we were actually working on several feasibility mandates pre March 15th. None of those got canceled. And since March 15th, we've actually picked up a, a handful more feasibility assignments, which is kind of counterintuitive on the one hand. On the other hand, when you think about it, you know, in some of the markets that we've been working, uh, like in Miami, right, uh, long lead times for development, right? So, you know, if you're looking at a compelling story that that's not gonna be delivered for three, four, five years, now is the time to be looking at it. So uh, believe it or not, we're, we're still fairly, you know, fairly uh, active in, in, in the feasibility world doing uh, lots of litigation-oriented uh, assignments for a whole slew of reasons. I mean, the reality is we do a lot of litigation work uh, all the time, right? Um, if you think about it, you know, um, um, you know, people fight over money in good times and bad times, right? So you just don't hear about litigation during the good times. You hear about during the bad times. So we're real busy on that. Uh, the asset management front, incredibly busy. And receivership falls within the asset, asset management front. And um, we've been very fortunate to, uh, we're actually working on a fairly sizable portfolio. Uh, this is in the public domain, one of the, uh, one of the colony capital portfolios, the inland portfolio. It's 48 assets uh, around the United States. Uh, and we're also uh, um, been approached on several other, uh, uh, other mandates to, to serve as receiver. So congratulations on the colony uh, gig on that piece of business. That's great. For you guys, at least, maybe not so great for Colony. Um, so, talk. That's here's a topic everybody wants to know about. It talk to me, not Colony specifically, but receivership in general, right? Talk me through that process. What's it look like? A lot of people are uncertain about it. Thank goodness, because we haven't really been through a lot of it. But educate us. Okay. Well, I mean, essentially, um, you know, and again, we're not talking about Colony. 
Um, um, but you know, a, a, a lender, you know, to secure their uh, their position, you know, uh, either either uh, you know does a foreclosure or they or they you know attempt to appoint a receiver. And a receiver um, does not represent the lender. The receiver is is uh, is a court uh, uh, an agent of the court and has to report to the court. Does not report to the lender. Does not report to the borrower. It's the court and. Um, it is a process in terms of uh, uh, being nominated, and um, and then you know going in front of a judge and getting the judge to you know either accept or, or reject uh, the candidate to, to to serve as the receiver, uh, and 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 then it's a you know it's a process to to take control of the asset. In 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 many cases, uh, uh, fresh management is brought in, right, and um, and 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 just securing the 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 day to day operation. Uh, you know, it's really interesting, you know, in prior downturns, uh, when, when folks did receiverships, they were, for the most part, operating facilities, right? Today, you have receiverships going on with a whole slew of assets that are closed, which presents all sorts of new challenges. Um, you know, in terms of how long a receivership lasts, it could be from a couple of weeks to a couple of years, and anything in between. You know, it, it, it really depends on, on, on the asset and uh, and and frankly, positioning, uh, positioning the asset to, you know, recruit, recoup as much uh, uh, proceeds as can be uh, for the secured creditors. I mean, that, that's, that's the whole purpose of this. And, um, you know, I, 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 my sense is that we're going to be seeing a fair number of receiverships uh, bubbling up as time goes on here, unfortunately, um, and that it will be a process to work through them and ultimately uh, um, either work out situations or, 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 you know, dispose of assets. So let's pretend I'm a borrower. Let's talk on that side. Do I have any luck with my, and I'm not making any money. So I may or may not be making any payments right now. When does that go to the servicing and the special servicer? When does the receiver get pulled in? When is so that, that's interesting. In? Uh, say that again. And when does a broker get pulled in? Okay. You know, as far as a, uh, a, a, um, a receiver or a special, going into special servicing, right? For the most part, uh, not that many people step up and, and wave a flag and saying, hey, we're having difficulty, please move us into special servicing. But it does happen every so often. And I've actually uh, been privy to situations where that actually worked out to the benefit of the sponsor to do that, um, to raise their hand and say early on and say, we're having an issue. Um, and the master can't talk to you, so please move us into special so we can get a conversation going. Do you recommend that? I can't say I recommend it, I, but I can tell you that I've seen it happen. It's not often, and I, I have seen it actually happen uh, it, it successfully, and I'll tell you why. That the special services, they've been inundated, right? Nobody expected COVID to hit the way it did, and the suddenness of just travel stopping, stopping entirely, and and hotels shutting down and, and folks not being able to make their payments. And so the specials have been inundated with, uh, with just stuff coming in and, and they're not staffed up appropriately to even deal with it. Um, in terms of uh, um, um, the, the, uh, the situation that I was, I was referring to about the, uh, um, the one group that uh, sort of raised their hands, uh, they were provided with a with a list uh, from the special of all the information that that was needed, and um, 
it was all immediately provided. And uh, they made an ask as well, right, for six months of forbearance and the usual, if you will. And, um, you know, at some point, they didn't really hear from the special and touch base only to find out that uh, um, they were deemed good borrowers. And why was that? They were proactive and raised their hand when, uh, when they realized they couldn't make payments. They asked to get transferred to special. They responded in a timely manner with everything that the special required, and no payment was ever missed prior to April 1st. So that sponsor went into the good borrower file, as opposed to the other file, which apparently is much, much bigger. And the special was very clear that they're dealing with the big file and the small files over here, which is kind of interesting because the ask was for six months. And if, the, if it was dealt with now and the ask was granted, the six months are over at the end of August. So that, that, that's kind of an interesting notion. Can I, when can I the borrower, whether I'm good or bad, I want to, I'm in trouble, but so I don't want to make payments. I can't really get much help, but now, okay, I want to buy my note for cents on the dollar. Any, good luck. any chance? Good luck. Good luck. I mean, listen, you know, it, 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 we all know there's, there's, you know, CNBS financing and then there's balance sheet financing, right? The balance sheet financing, again, we all know that, you know, it tends to be relationship oriented. There's somebody to talk to, to work things out and, and uh, um, you know, and come up with a, a win-win situation, right? As opposed to CMBS where the REMIC rules are very clearly defined and, you know, not only is the master not empowered to do a whole lot, the special is really not empowered to do a whole lot either. Um, and, and everybody takes on liability if they don't follow the rules, right? So uh, in terms of coming back to your question about, you know, buying your note at, at cents on the dollar, you, you probably have to take a number and get in line with everybody else. Yeah. And, and if I show up and say, hey, I'd like to buy my note, and it goes to the special servicer, I call the receiver and say, hey, Dan, let me, let me, let me make a bid. What's their reaction going to be? Sure, here you go. Other than get in line. Uh, got to go to market and at the end of the day there's a fiduciary responsibility to the bondholders to as i said earlier uh you know secure the asset and 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 realize the maximum proceeds from that asset and so uh you know for the most part each one of these situations needs to be fully marketed and exposed and and a competitive bid process undertaken and yes you may win right and you know the asset better than anybody else but um, you're competing with anybody else that may be interested in the opportunity. And that goes for a third party investor who I'd like to buy that hotel right next door to me. Hey, Dan, I'll, I'll make you a good bid. Give me a favor. Why don't you sell me that? So I, I will tell you that I've received an inordinate amount of calls, um, just like you're describing. And, uh, you know, it, it's a process, right? It, it, it's, it's not that a receiver gets appointed and then, you know, the next day there's a, you know, a liquidation opportunity that, that just doesn't happen. Uh, so essentially what I do is I tell them, call T. Hunter, he'll help you out. Nice work. Thank you, Dan. Plug for, plug for that one. Um, I agree. It's, my point here is it's a process, right? It's not a simple thing. All the negatives we know about CMBS are real. It's a process. And to your point, it may be a month, it may be three years. So how long do you think this one's going to go this this recession this sort of downturn how long do you think it'll take for the asset you no know, i wish i wish i had a a uh, 
a concrete answer for that. And I could be like others and, and, and give you a, a clear cut answer. I'd be making it up as I was going along. The reality is I don't know. None of us know, right? If you think about what we're dealing with today, um, you know, people talk about 9-11, right? They talk about the, uh, the Great uh, Recession. You know, for the most part, those were one and done deals, right? This is not a one and done deal, right? If, you know, back in March 15th, April, right? Everybody was talking about Labor Day. We're going to be back to normal, you know, off to the races, like nothing ever happened. And here we are today, right? So the answer to your question is, you tell me when this is all over, and then I'll tell you how long it's going to last. <laughs> right. I'm, I'm asking the questions here, Dan. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me, so to that point, how do you underwrite things, whether it's appraisals or valuations? How are you underwriting today, dare I say, versus 2008 when you felt there was an end? How are you underwriting today with no end? Well, that's a very fair question. Listen, the fundamental premise of, of underwriting uh, um, hotels, which are income producing assets, hasn't changed, right? It's, it's all about cash flow, cash flow, and more cash flow. Um, so, you know, doing valuations at, and as a third party appraiser, um, I don't make the market, I reflect the actions of the market, right? And we've had a period of time here where the market has been fairly frozen and not a whole lot of activity to reflect. Um, so that's where really our, our expertise comes into play, being specialized exclusively in, in the lodging sector, in that you know, we talk daily with, with active market participants, whether it be intermediaries like you, buyers, sellers, existing owners, uh, lenders, um, anybody and everybody who's involved in, in the hotel space to, 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 to keep track of you know, what's going on today. And as we know, it's, it's very, the hotel business is very fluid and dynamic in normal times, right? Just think about you know, today versus three months ago or even three weeks ago, how things have evolved and changed and constantly change. So in terms of answering your question about underwriting and valuation, um, you, you, have to, you have to put a stick in the ground and, 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 and figure out, okay, this is the starting point, right? This is when, uh, you know, this asset is going to reopen. And, and it's, it's, it's no different than we did in the past. It's a projection of income and expense, discounted cash flow, um, you know, sales. Nobody ever bought a hotel based on, uh, you know, another hotel sale price. Um, you know, they're nice to look at on a per pound basis just to kind of get a sense. Um, uh, but there aren't a whole lot of uh, transactions to look to. And then, of course, the cost analysis is nobody buys a hotel based on replacement cost either. Right. Uh, um, but it is always an interesting check vis-a-vis. -vis, well, how does that how does the 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 uh, the income value, if you will, compare to uh, replacement cost? Is it above? Is it below? And what are the implications of that? Uh, so the, the methodology hasn't changed, um, but obviously there's, there's a lot more fluidity with, uh, with assumptions. Yeah, a lot more. And yeah. I don't know if we have a handle yet on the buyer expectations versus the seller expectations uh, and what all the capital flow in our industry is doing to valuations. Any thoughts there? Well, th th there is a tremendous amount of capital uh, that, is, that is out there seeking yield in general and focused on commercial real estate, and then drill, drilling down even further, focused on, on, on lodging. Because it's, it's been proven for decades now that um, if purchased 
right, hotels produce superior risk-adjusted returns when compared with a whole slew of other investments. And uh, I mean, if you just look at, 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 at uh, you know, early in this, in this COVID uh, um, epidemic here in the United States, you know, you had a rash of, of really smart, sophisticated investors who uh, made huge bets, uh, not necessarily on individual assets, but on the travel sector, right? You know, you had, you had Starwood and, and Blackstone investing in ESA, right? You had uh, um, Carnival Cruise Lines, the Saudi Arabians uh, uh, picked up a, a percent of, uh, of Carnival Cruise Lines. Sonder uh, received a, a big investment. Airbnb got two separate rounds of billion dollar, I think one was debt and the other was equity. Um, and I, if you think about it, that's a good example, right? Back, back in April when, they, when the, they were doing that, everybody was talking about, oh, the IPO is dead. Well, here we are now, what, two months later, three months later? And they're supposedly, you know, going through with the IPO, which is interesting in and of itself. So, um, how do you think that's going to go? I plead the fifth. I have no idea. <laughs> I agree with that. <laughs> but in terms of capital, there's no shortage of money out there. Um, the 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 opportunities haven't bubbled up just yet. With, you know, everybody's you... playing. Everybody's playing nicely in the sandbox. They have been since mid March. And, uh, you know, I do believe that's going to continue for just a, a little while longer. But, you know, shortly after Labor Day through the end of the year, I think the sharp elbows come out and no more playing nicely in the sandbox. Yeah, it's interesting. That's the question. When does when do the sharp elbows come out? So would you remember? I don't remember there being this much capital in 08 and 09 as there is today. I, I've been doing this for 40 years. There's never been more capital than there is today. Available capital. There's Which, tons of it out there. Which has an impact all on over value. the world. Go ahead. Which has an impact on value. Well, for sure, for sure. So, in my humble opinion, what's going to happen ultimately is one of two things, right? Distressed, distressed opportunities are going to bubble up, and we all know that uh, um, you know the United States is is littered with with uh, uh, functionally uh, and physically obsolete hotels that pre-COVID, we're sort of approaching the end of their economic lives. Um, you know, obviously COVID doesn't help that situation, right? When those, when those situations become available, there are folks out there who are clearly gonna be interested in those types of opportunities, but the institutional capital is focused on the value add opportunities. Um, you know, uh, the, the, the stories that, that, that can be realized, right? And, and the compelling stories that do bubble up there's so much institutional capital out there that I am convinced that the good, the good opportunities, they may represent distressed opportunities, but ultimately when we look at what they transact for, they will not necessarily represent distressed pricing. All right, so I'm gonna, final questions maybe, but give me some words of wisdom, some final advice out there for all of us. Final advice. Um, if you're looking for a uh, really terrific hotel intermediary, I recommend Teague Hunter. <laughs> um, I would say be patient, be optimistic, pray. Um, we will get through this, right? It, 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 when I look back, this, is given, this, this, this time has given me an opportunity to look back on my life and, and, and contemplate other events uh, that have happened that were shocking. And, and, and overwhelming and, and sort of made the world feel like it was about to end, right? 
going as far back as the Cuban Missile Crisis, which I remember. Uh, and you know, back in those days, it was black and white TV, right? Nine channels, and after the ten o'clock news, there was no more TV, right? And the United States was on the verge of nuclear nuclear war with the Soviet Union, right? And so you heard that at night, right? And the TV went off, and you got to fret all night about it, and you know, learning how to hide under your desk and things like that. It seemed like the world was coming to an end, right? You fast forward to the to the uh, oil embargo that occurred in, in the 1970s when there wasn't enough gasoline to fill cars and you know, you had odd days and even days, right? The world seemed like it was gonna come to an end. Um, the 1987 stock market crash, 500 points, 22% decline. That was earth shattering at the time, right? Today, that's nothing, right? But these were events that, 9-11, the great financial crisis. I mean, all these events were, were, oh my God, the world's ending, right? And a lot of negativity took hold and, you know, you remember after 9-11, everybody said Lower Manhattan was done, was finished. Look what happened there, right? So stay optimistic. We will get past this. Uh, it's human nature to survive, thrive, um, to spend time together. I mean, this is great, right? But, uh, you know, I'd like to give you a hug at the end, but we can't do that, right? So exactly. So listen, are we going to get back to the way it was entirely before? Probably not. It's going to be it's going to be different, but I'd like to think it's going to be better, right? And the last thing I would say is that if you look at the hotel business over a long period of time, whenever there's a downturn, the upturn ends up with a higher level than the prior downturn. So Think about where we came off of, right? In February, we're all-time high metrics. And everybody was talking about black swan, black swan. Nobody knew what it was going to be, and now we know what it is, right? And it's been a, 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 you know, a, a fall off the cliff, right? If you think about it, there's no downside in the sector at this point. There's only upside. I'll take it. Words of wisdom from Dan Lesser. So thank you. That's fantastic. Dan, thank you for joining me. You're a good friend you. and a good man. Uh, this was great. I appreciate it. Stay safe. Stay healthy. You too. Uh, make me some fried eggs, will you? Absolutely. Good to see you. Thanks, Dad. Thanks for the invite.